18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's likely a Bible in front of you. You can grab that and turn to page 511. 511. Give heed to the word of God and let us continue to worship God as we hear his word read and preached. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. And oh, Father, we do pick up the words of Psalm 118 and we make them our own. We pray, save us, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Oh, Father, we desire, we earnestly desire to experience your salvation. And, oh, Father, as we look into your word this morning, we earnestly desire to see your salvation in Jesus Christ, the great Savior, the very image of God. 
Oh, Father, we pray, give us faith today. Let us not be ruled by dull and stony hearts, but give us hearts of flesh, agreeable to your words, that we might look into it and see glories of Jesus Christ, and that we might be made glad when we see him. That we might say, this is marvelous in our eyes. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray, we ask that you would lead us in worship now through your word. And we cry out, Spirit, oh, would you attend your word and give life to our weary souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Resurrection Sunday and we celebrate good news. Paul summarizes the content of this good news, the gospel, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says this about the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we can ask Paul this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what is Christianity all about? Why are people gathering this morning and worshiping and singing and praising and reading God's word? Well, Paul points us directly to Jesus and what Jesus has done. He peppers us with terse statements. This is the gospel. This is the reason Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. And he appeared. Even more in 1 Corinthians 15, we quickly learn what it means to be a Christian. Paul writes just before this definition of the good news and says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In order to be a Christian, one must do something with this gospel. One must do something with the death of Christ, with the burial of Christ, with the resurrection of Christ, with the appearances of Christ. And that something that must be done, Paul says very clearly, is faith. And Paul gives us some handholds to make sense of what does faith actually mean. Paul says we must receive this gospel, we must take it in, we must stand in this gospel, and all the more we must hold fast to this gospel. We cannot let it go. It's important to notice that Paul anchors this message of the gospel he preaches about Jesus and what Jesus has done in a very particular source. Paul's not flying by the seat of his pants as he, as he does ministry. He's not making things up as he goes. Rather, it's something that regulates Paul's ministry. There's something that defines his message about Jesus. And we hear this refrain in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In accordance with the scriptures in accordance with the scriptures. And for the Apostle Paul, as he looks at the events of the gospel, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the appearances of Jesus, he realizes that they were written about before they even ever happened. 
Documents spanning back hundreds to thousands of years wrote about what would be accomplished through the Messiah. And this refrain that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, in accordance with the scriptures, had massive ramifications for Paul's ministry. When Paul went to teach or preach the good news about Jesus, what Jesus had done, how did he do it? Well, he took people back to the scriptures, and we can imagine Paul preaching and teaching others. Hear what Isaiah said about Jesus. Go back, look at Moses. What did Moses say about Jesus? He wrote about him. Hear what David said about Jesus. This morning, our aim is to follow Paul's example. We want to tell the story of Jesus' resurrection from the scriptures, particularly Psalm 118. Now, if we were to take Paul's words seriously this morning in accordance with the scriptures, we have to do this with two firmly established presuppositions in our minds. That's a big word, presupposition. What does that mean? What is a presupposition? Well, a presupposition is a tacitly held belief. It is something that is assumed. Presuppositions function much like a pair of glasses. If you put on a yellow pair of tinted glasses and you look at the world, everything is going to appear with a yellow tint. If you take off those yellow tinted glasses and you put on a pair of blue tinted glasses, everything you see in the world is going to appear with a blue tint. And the question for us this morning is not if we have presuppositions or if we are wearing tinted glasses. Rather, the question is if our presuppositions are any good. Do these glasses that we wear every day and look at the world, do these glasses help us see the truth? Do these glasses help us to see goodness and beauty? Or do the presuppositions we have and carry, do these glasses that we wear make the truth dull to us? Are we blind to the truth? So we have to wear two specific pairs of glasses this morning to see Jesus in Psalm 118. And the first pair of glasses that must control our vision is this. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection from the dead in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is traveling on the road to Emmaus and he meets a couple of his disciples and he has a conversation and he rebukes these disciples on the road. He says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then what does Jesus do with these dull disciples of his? Well, Luke records, following this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What do we glean from this story? Well, the truth was there in the scriptures. However, the problem with with these men is that they could not see it. Unbelief clouded their vision. Their glasses were unhelpful so that they could not see the beauty residing in the scriptures. It was there all along. They couldn't see it. So Jesus comes along in this conversation and he gives them a new pair of glasses so that they could see him in the scriptures, so that they could see beauty and goodness and truth. And so as we go to Psalm 118, we're going to look at this psalm with these glasses that Jesus gives us from Luke chapter 24. We're going to operate with this in mind. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And we need a second pair of glasses. We need a second presupposition. And this is more particular to Psalm 118. We must understand that this psalm, in fact, all the psalms are concerned about the matter of kingship. If you go to the beginning of the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2 introduces us to what the Psalter is all about. And Psalm 2 says this, God appears, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And if you move through the book of Psalms, you'll see that, the, that this great collection of songs, we, in, this, in this collection, we keep hearing from this king by the name of David. Nearly half of the songs written in this book are penned by David himself, the great king of Israel. And so when we come to Psalm 118, we're not just hearing the words of Joe Schmo, Israelite, who got into trouble, who's experiencing anxiety and distress, and then experienced the salvation of God. Rather, we're hearing the testimony of a king and his experience of salvation. And we can combine these two presuppositions. When we come to Psalm 118, we're hearing the testimony of King Jesus and his experience of salvation. And so with these two presuppositions fixed in our minds, we can turn now to to Psalm 118 and see Jesus and look at the news of his resurrection And as we examine this passage, this psalm, we will see three themes emerge about Jesus and his resurrection. So the first theme we'll look at this morning is resurrection and the king's salvation. Psalm 118 begins with the king giving a direct call to worship. If you look at your Bibles, verse 1 says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this call to worship that the king gives in verse 1 is an expansive call. He's not just speaking to a small group of individuals. In verse 2, he calls for all of Israel to worship the Lord. In verse 3, he calls for the the priesthood of Israel to worship the Lord. And then in verse 4, he calls on anyone who fears the Lord to come and worship the Lord. And this king is gathering everyone and anyone to gather and worship the Lord. And as sensitive readers of the scriptures, we have to come to these verses and ask, ask why? What has the Lord done that the whole nation of Israel, stretching from the north to the south to east to the west, has to gather together and worship the Lord? What has done that the whole priesthood, these men who are busy in their important work, serving the temple, must stop, give heed to the king, and worship the Lord? What has the Lord done that all the God-fears must gather from wherever they are, to hear this word of the king. In verses 5 through 21, the king gives us an answer. The king here in verses 5 through 21 gives his testimony to all who would hear him. And as we work our way from verse 5 to verse 21, there is a, a sharpening in his explanation. The king works from the broad to the very narrow as he explains his plight and his situation. This king has experienced many troubles. In verse 5, we learn that this king has experienced distress. And as we read on, we learn that this distress was not simply mental anguish or depression. But in verse 7, we see that the cause of this anguish is due to that there are men who hate the king. And the psalm continues to focus our attention 
The king's enemies are not just a band of marauders or political dissidents or a small faction within the kingdom who hate the king. But by the time we come to verse 10, a shocking scene is portrayed. The king says, all the nations surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. And the king wants us to picture a great battle scene. And we can picture this in our mind's eye, where he is surrounded on every side by a horde of warriors. The nations are pushing against him. The noose is tightening around his neck. There is no escape for this man. And what is the likely outcome of this battle? Well, it's going to be death. There is no escape. What we hear in the king's testimony in Psalm 118 is not an isolated incident within the pages of the Old Testament. Rather, the suffering here, the the desperation we see in Psalm 118 is a, a thread woven throughout the whole Old Testament. Kingship in Israel is often a vocation of suffering and distress and anguish. We don't have to look any farther than the life of David. We know David from Sunday school, his slingshot abilities, he killed Goliath. But when we look closer at David's life, his kingship, his reign, his life was predominantly marked with suffering and with anguish. He was harassed and hunted by Saul for years. He was hiding in caves, running for his life. He was met by constant opposition from outside enemies, from the Philistines, from the Amalekites. And trouble was born even in his own household. His own son, Absalom, rose up against him and sought his life and his kingdom and his very throne. And when you go to the Psalms, the Psalms are very intimate about David's suffering. He was a great sufferer. Psalm 22, David cries out. And if you know your Bibles well, you'll hear this cry somewhere else in the Gospels. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. In Psalm 69, he he complains. And this song is picked up in the New Testament as well. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And when we turn from the pages of the Old Testament, we find direct continuity. Just as David's life was marked by suffering and anguish, just as the king of Psalm 118's life was marked by suffering and anguish, so too the king we meet in the New Testament's life is marked by suffering and anguish. From the very beginning, Jesus was pushed hard and he was surrounded. Herod hunted for his life. He wanted to kill him. He was oppressed constantly by the Pharisees. The religious leaders placed traps to catch Jesus. He was tempted and tried by Satan. He was handed over to the Gentiles. And finally, he was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem with a criminal on his left and a criminal on his right. And surely... Surely we can say Psalm 118 describes the life of Jesus well. All the nations surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. 
They went out like a fire among thorns. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But what does the Lord do for his king? Why must Israel stop and worship? Why must the priests stop and worship? Why must all the God-fearers stop and worship? Because God does something for his king. God saves his king. Though the king is distressed, surrounded on every side by his enemies, given over to the sentence of death, the Lord intervenes for his king. And the king of Psalm 118 celebrates this victory. Verse 5, the king says, The Lord answered me and set me free. Verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And we must ask, what has the Lord, what has God done for his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved son? God has saved his king. Though Jesus was hunted and oppressed by his enemies, though he was discarded by the religious elites, though the nations surrounded him, though he bore the curse for our sin, though he was crucified with criminals, though he died and was buried in the grave, God saved the king. And when we look into the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the Savior. And while Jesus is the Savior, he is also the first man who experienced God's salvation. And Peter preaches in the book of Acts, and he has this distinctive message, and it's this, God has saved the king. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter rings out the news of Easter. He says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter preaches with his adversaries all around him, threatening him and accusing him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, and he says this from Psalm 118. He preaches, God has saved the king. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And when we reflect upon Easter, the news that we hear from Peter From Psalm 118, Easter proclaims a sure and unalterable fact. The Lord is eternally and immutably for his son. And the resurrected king draws near to our souls this morning and he preaches the news of Easter. He preaches the news of resurrection. And what is this news? Jesus says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on all of my enemies, on all who hate me. And Easter presses this glorious point. Jesus is God's king. And we have to get this straight. Easter is not a fairy tale ending to the gospel story. But Easter is a great political upheaval. Easter reveals that Jesus is the firmly established king over all things. And Easter calls for allegiance. Easter demands allegiance. And the apostles understood this thoroughly. Hear what Paul says, reflecting on Easter in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus 
and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God saved the King and the Lord is eternally and immutably for his Son. And there's good news for us here this morning. This resurrected king who experienced the salvation of God counsels us this morning. He draws near to our hearts and he he counsels us. And he preaches with loving sincerity. What does Jesus say to you this morning? We'll look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. That's what the king says. Theme number two, resurrection and the king's procession. So within a monarchy, there exists a thing called corporate solidarity. And it means this, the king represents his people and correspondingly, the fate of the people rests upon the king. So we can just narrate this out a bit. If the king does well in battle, what does this mean for the people? Well, it means that the people do well in battle. If the king does poorly in battle, what does it mean for the people? Well, it means that they will do poorly in battle, that they will share in his humiliation and his defeat. If the king makes wise economic decisions, what does this mean for the people? Well, they will share in the fruit of his decisions. If the king acts like a fool and makes poor choices, what will happen to the people? Well, they will experience his folly and his ruin. It will be theirs as well. And we can see this principle displayed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We can just go back to the life of David. And we see this this thing called corporate solidarity at work in the life of David. He defeats Goliath. And what does this mean for the people? Well, it means that Israel charges ahead and they, they defeat the Philistines. They mop up. They share in the victory of David. We also see it for the worst in the life of David. And this is a striking scene. David in his pride and in his arrogance wrongly takes a census of Israel. And what does David's sin mean for the people of Israel? Well, David's sin means that 70,000 people, 70,000 men died for something that David did. They didn't sin, David sinned, and they die for David's sin. That's corporate solidarity. And the principle is simple. As the king goes, so goes the nation. In Psalm 118, we can go back to the battlefield. So we pick up the scene. The king is in distress. He is surrounded. He's going to die. But then verse 5 happens. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. And something amazing happens. Salvation comes to this king. The king of Psalm 118 doesn't die. He isn't defeated in battle. But the Lord empowers him and fights for him. And the king celebrates in verse 10 this victory that Yahweh provides for his king. And the king says this, All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The question becomes for us, what does this victorious king do next? And what the king does next yet happens today. We can think about our baseball teams or our football teams 
When your baseball team wins the World Series or your football team wins the, the Super Bowl, what happens? Well, the victors go home. When they go home, a great party begins, a parade starts. They're showered with confetti and champagne, champagne and cheers wherever they go. And so in Psalm 118, the king returns from the battlefield and he draws near to his city. The gates are closed. The city is shut up. They don't know if victory has happened yet. They're in suspense. What has happened to our king? And the king draws near after his victory and he cries out in triumph. Verse 19, he says this, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And here we need to return to the issue of corporate solidarity. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And so what does the victory, what does the procession of the king mean for God's people? So we have to look closely at the text here because we see it in the text. We have to read verses 19 through 20 together. So look at your Bibles. The king shouts out in victory as he draws near to the city and he says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. We go down to verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. As the king goes, so goes the nation. Because the king experienced salvation, the people experienced salvation. Because the king won, the people have victory. Because the king celebrated, the people sing glad songs of salvation. And we see in verses 19 and 20, because the king enters the gates and throws them open, the people can enter the gate. And as we cast our eyes into the New Testament, Christ has done something far better. He has waged the great war. He was pushed and surrounded. He was encircled by the nations. The cords of death wrapped him up and drug him down to the grave. But he did not lose the war. And God's saving power drew near to him in the grave and raised him up incorruptible. And the resurrected Jesus takes up this great victory chant from Psalm 118. As death and sin and Satan lie defeated before him, Jesus cries out in victory and he says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. He is the victor and all of his enemies are laid before him in defeat. And this is incredibly good news for us today. Because as the king goes, so goes the nation. And we need to get this into our souls this morning. And the great truth this morning is that if you are numbered among Jesus' people, what is true of Jesus is also true for you. His victory is our victory. His defeat of death is our defeat of death. His triumph over sin is our triumph over sin. His conquest over Satan is our conquest over Satan. His resurrection we can say is our resurrection. His joy is our joy. His salvation, we can say it's our salvation. And because we are united and one with Jesus, we can rightly and we can appropriately take up the words of Psalm 118 as our own. We don't have to be shy this morning. We don't have to be feeble. Psalm 118 is ours by virtue of King Jesus. Because Jesus said, verse 14, we can say verse 14 and take it to our own hearts. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. 
Because Jesus cried out with confidence in verse 17. We can cry out with confidence in verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Because Jesus celebrated with great hope in verse 21. We can celebrate with great hope and take verse 21 as our own. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And because Jesus said these words in verses 6 and 7, we can say these words and we can bury them so far down deep in our souls. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. There's such good news here for us today. And we are made glad by this Jesus. For Jesus has flung wide the gates of the city. And because Jesus has flung wide the gates of the city, we can enter into the city with King Jesus as well. As Jesus exited from his grave, he cried out, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And we, as Jesus' people, live in verse 20 today. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. As the king goes, so go the people. Praise God. Theme number three. Resurrection and the king's worship. We can ask a simple question here. What is the end game of resurrection? Why does God save the life of his king? Why does he provide rescue for his king and and rescue him from the nations and keep him from death? Well, the answer to this question is rudimentary. We find the rationale for the resurrection in the first verse of this psalm. Look at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Resurrection produces worship. And we can sharpen the statement even further. The resurrection of King Jesus produces a worshiping community. Or we can say it in another way. Resurrection is all about doxology. So we've already noted the call of Psalm 118. In verses 1 through 4, the king draws near to his people. He's experienced the salvation of God and he calls them to worship. He calls Israel to worship. He calls the priesthood to worship. He calls all who fear the Lord to worship. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And we can ask, do these people obey the call of the king? Does Israel gather around the king and sing the praises of God? Do the priests stop in the midst of their busyness? They have so much work to do and hear the king and praise God. Do all the God-fears draw near from the north and the south and the east and the west to hear the king and worship God? And something very interesting happens in Psalm 118. In verses 1 through 21, there is one speaker and it's the king. He speaks in the first person throughout these first 21 verses. He talks about his experiences in the first person. He says, I shall not die but live. He says, I shall not look in triumph. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. 
He says, I was pushed hard. And he speaks to the people. He commands them, you, you give thanks to the Lord. But after verse 21, there is a drastic change in this psalm. In verse 22, we hear someone else starts speaking. No longer do we hear the voice of the king, but we hear a chorus of voices, and they begin to sing a distinct song, and they respond in obedience to the resurrected king. And they start singing in verse 22, and what do they say? Well, they sing this song. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we see here in Psalm 118 that the resurrection, the salvation of the king has actually done something. The people see what God has done for their king. They see how the Lord rescued the king from the nations. They see how the Lord delivered his life from death. And what they see with their eyes makes their hearts so happy and glad. They sing, let us rejoice and be glad in it. The resurrection of the king makes the people of God infinitely happy. The king's salvation brings gladness near and into their hearts. And we can bring this all to bear upon the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus was born of a virgin He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He suffered insult, shame, and grief. He was led out to Golgotha. He was nailed to a tree. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And he was raised up on the third day. Why? All for this great purpose, so that he would lead a people to worship God. That we would be led to sing, this is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And the resurrection teaches a great fact. Jesus Christ is a great worship leader. By virtue of his resurrection from the grave, he leads the host of the redeemed to worship his father. Jesus, as the great worship leader, does it all. He he takes our sin and our shame and he he presents us holy and righteous to God. He opens our mute mouths. He loosens our stuck tongues. He overcomes our cold and stony hearts. And he places a new song within our mouths. He teaches us to sing. He teaches us to sing. And when we go to the end of the Bible we find the fruit of Jesus' perfect worship ministry. The perfect worship leader does this. The book of Revelation says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Jesus teaches us to sing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is a great worship leader and he teaches us as his people to sing the praises of God. And we can press this on our souls this morning. How do you know if you're numbered among God's people? Well, you will live a life marked by the praise of God. Our mouths, our lives, our bodies will erupt in worship to God. We will be a people who say, let us rejoice 
and be glad in it. Well, dear friends, the gospel is true. It is so true. Paul reminded the Corinthians of the gospel, and I will remind you again of the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does this mean? Jesus died. He was buried. He, he was raised. He appeared. Well, from Psalm 118, we can say this. God saved the king. And this king that God saved is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is ruling and he is reigning over all things today. And he sounds forth a gracious command to the nations, to you. Easter issues a command that must be met with obedience. And what is the command? Well, it's this from Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Might all of God's people say his steadfast love endures forever. And I ask you this morning, won't you respond in obedience to King Jesus Will you hear the call of Easter? The resurrected king is at God's right hand and he rules. Will you bend your knee to him and give praise to his God? Will these words be found upon your lips? And may it be so. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do rejoice now. Our hearts are made glad. Jesus Christ is king. You have saved him. Death could not hold him. Sin could not constrain him. And he is the victor. And Father, we pray that you would lead cold and stony hearts this morning to worship God. Father, do this work for your eternal glory and for our happiness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.